Hey everybody, welcome back to The Curbsiders. Today we have a very special treat for you. Recently, The Curbsiders sat down with the great Dr. Sarah Vinson, who is an expert on ADHD, and they talked all about the diagnosis, the treatment, they talked about what to do with adult ADHD, and finally, they talked about some of the health disparities that surround this very common issue. This episode was an absolute joy to listen to, and I hope you like it as much as we did. Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders, everyone. Howdy. We are joined tonight by our, our outstanding co-host, uh, Dr. Krista Chumanchu, an incredible medical student producer, Angela Zane. Say hey, Angela. Hey, y'all. We are so excited tonight. We had a outstanding guest, Dr. Sarah Vinson, who discussed ADHD and all of the deep structural components that come with the diagnosis of ADHD. It was a wonderful episode. I learned a ton. It was challenging. It was beautiful. It was wonderful. But first, before we get into some of the content, Chris, I forgot. What do we do do on the show? Well, we are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. And and Angela, can you tell us a little bit about, about Dr. Vincent and who she is? Yeah, so we're really excited about our guest today. We talked to Dr. Sarah Vinson. So Sarah Y. Vinson is a physician who specializes in adult, child, and adolescent, and forensic psychiatry. She completed medical school at the University of Florida and trained in general psychiatry at Cambridge Health Alliance with Harvard Medical School. She then returned to the South to complete fellowships in both child and adolescent and forensic psychiatry at Emory University School of Medicine. In addition to providing mental health care services, such as psychotherapy, consultation, and psychopharmacology through her private practice, Dr. Vinson is an associate clinical professor of psychiatry and pediatrics at the Morehouse School of Medicine. Today, she teaches us about how to responsibly diagnose ADHD, first-line treatments based on how old your patient is, and why race and racism are important to consider. Okay, let's get to it, guys. Did you guys see that squirrel outside my window? No. No, I was really focused on my script. (laughs) Dr. Vincent, thank you so much for coming to the show. We're very excited to have you. I am extremely excited about this topic because ADHD is something that I uh, struggle with a lot. And so I'm Justin Burke. We're the Cribsiders. We're here with our wonderful producer, Angela Zane. Angela, you want to say hello? Hi. (laughs) All right. We're excited to have you. And so, Dr. Vincent, one question. We always try to be informal in the show, and so we'd like to ask permission. But for informality's sake, are you okay if we call you Sarah for the show? Absolutely. Excellent. Thank you so much, Sarah. We want to get to know you. We want our our show guests, audience to get to know you. Can you describe yourself a little bit to us so that we know who is Dr. Sarah Benson? Sure. So when I went to medical school, I thought I was going to be a pediatrician, but then I fell in love with psychiatry. So naturally, I became a child psychiatrist and have ended up doing integrated care as well. So I'm sort of a pediatrician groupie. And I am an associate clinical professor of psychiatry and pediatrics at Morehouse School of Medicine. So my first question is the one I almost always ask is, do you have a favorite failure and what did you learn from it? Man, a favorite failure. 
I would say for me, it was actually that first year of medical school because it was such a huge adjustment for me in terms of workload and learning how to study and all of those things. And it was really a gut check for me about how badly I wanted to be a physician. And so feeling as if that was at risk reinforced to me how important it was that I pursue this work. And, you know, things have gone pretty well since then, but it's humbling and it gives me a certain perspective. And it also, I think, enables me to encourage students in a way that I wouldn't if I hadn't had that experience. So I'm grateful for that and for the, you know, first year medical students, it gets better. My first anatomy test was one of the most humbling experiences in the entire (laughs) academic career. And I feel you. Angela, you want to do a question? Sure. I really love this question uh, because I'm always looking for new recommendations. What is a book that every physician should read? Hmm. So given some of the things we're contending with in society today, not that they're new in society, but that we're paying more attention to, I do think How to Be an Anti-Racist is an important book because a lot of well-intentioned people think, well, if I'm not a bad person, if I'm not mistreating people, then I'm not part of the problem. And what I love about how this book presents it is that if we just perpetuate the status quo, those actions are actually supporting a racist system, which I know is a challenging thought for people. But I think that after reading it, you'll understand why the author frames it that way. And as physicians, we have so much authority and power and privilege I really do believe that if we got this right or got this closer to right, it could mean a lot for how our society as a whole operates. I love it. I think that's something we're working on individually, but also as an organization and podcast. And I appreciate you saying that. Why don't we, let's jump into some content. So in treating a patient, so our patient, Jordan, we have done a great job of identifying that he has great social support. He is set up with whatever resources he needs though we feel confidently that he ha- meets the diagnostic criteria for ADHD. In addition to the behavioral interventions, we've come to a decision that we're going to start pharmacotherapy. The list of medications, it is overwhelming for me and especially Chris. And just there's, uh, so that was a joke, Chris, is it Spence? Um, there's a lot of different medications that seem to have a different formulation of short-term versus long-term. Can you break it down for a simple person like me what am I doing first line? How am I managing this in the primary care office? And how much can I really do without you know, needing to have them go to a consultant or specialist if, if I feel comfortable? What, what are the basic first line things that, that a simple primary care doctor such as myself could do? So the, the list looks overwhelming, but at the end of the day, it's really methylphenidates, amphetamines, and alpha-2 agonists. They all fall into one of those three categories. Let's start with that. So what what I suggest to pediatricians is that you get a couple of methylphenidates you feel comfortable with, get a couple of amphetamines you feel comfortable with that are also covered by the formularies of the insurers you deal with the most, right? Just start whatever is preferred for the formularies that are most common in your clinic, learn those drugs. Because again, amphetamines, methylphenidates, alpha-2 agonists, it's one of those three. Typically, I will start with a stimulant because the effect sizes for treating ADHD symptoms are better for stimulants compared to the alpha-2 agonists. If you have issues with tolerance because of appetite suppression 
or poor sleep, then your alpha-2 agonists would be uh, better medication choices. In younger kids, I tend to start with shorter acting because I may have to play around with the dose a little bit more. But once I get a sense of what dose they need, switch to a longer acting so they can just take it and be covered for school all day. But most of the time, if it's straight ADHD, they're going to respond to the first or the second medication. So don't stress out about that long, long list and think you're doing your kids a disservice. Just know a couple of amphetamines, a couple of methylphenidates, and you're off to agonists, and you'll be able to serve most of the kids in your clinic just fine. So the first question I usually get from parents who don't know much about ADHD is I want to give a stimulant. And they're like, my kid's bouncing off the wall. Why do you want to give them a stimulant? Can you explain that a little bit? And so part of the problem with ADHD is that it's, it's kind of a misnomer, right? It's not that they have a deficit of attention. It's that their attention is all over the place and it's not appropriately focused. So it's almost as if they have too much attention because they're paying attention to Miss Smith and to Susie and to Timmy and to the bird outside the window, right? So you're trying to get them to focus in. And for the way that their brain works, for the dopaminergic turn, tone in their brain, this puts them more in line with what you would need them to do to be able to focus that a, a more typical kid their age would be able to. And so you know, attention deficit is is sort of a, like I said, it's sort of a misnomer, so it can make it a little bit confusing. But for their brain, it's actually going to help them focus better uh, because their attention is there. It's just all spread over the place. And so as far as a general strategy for treatment, if I may, selfishly, so that I can get feedback, what I have typically done would love feedback if this is the right thing to do. For most of them, I will start on a methylphenidate that is long acting once in the morning, see how it does. We can titrate the dose a little bit. And if they say, you know, Dr. Justin, this works great, but at 1 or 2 p.m. it's starting to wear off, then I'll supplement with a shorter term. But that is the extent of I feel comfortable with. But is that a reasonable strategy? Is that what we should be doing, essentially? Yeah, for a lot of kids, that is going to be just fine. Now, with younger kids, you know, in that I think we said Jordan was six, six or seven. So, So that's the age where I may not start off with, a long acting right away. But certainly if we're talking about nine, 10 teenagers, then you you think about that. If, If the child is really anxious or the parent is really anxious, then sometimes I'll start with a shorter acting just so that I can reassure them it's going to be gone in three hours or it's going to be gone, right? And so I can sort of head off some of the anxiety around taking medication by starting with a short acting and explaining that to them. But, you know, long acting especially if you're trying to get through a school day is the preferred method once you realize sort of what a child needs. You know, the other thing that we have to keep in mind with, with dosing is that there's a lot of variability around how much support kids have in school for taking medication. So I have some families where, you know, they're at school where they don't even have a full-time school nurse. So thinking about trying to dose at school is not very feasible. I have some families where mom might be working overnights and she doesn't get home till 10 in the morning. So dosing at school is actually the preferred option for them uh, because they're going to be able to more consistently get it there. So even when it comes to medication doses, we have to look at that child in the context of their family and in the context of their school environment and figure out sort of what's the best place for them to consistently get uh, what they need. And when would you switch from a methylphenidate to a methamphetamine? So I will typically start with methylphenidates because there's some evidence they may be a, a bit better tolerated. But if the methylphenidate isn't getting me what I want at a higher dose, then I'll think about an amphetamine at that point. 
The, the other thing I'll say too, is that, you know, these medicines work and we don't have studies that say, you know, this one is so much better than the other stimulants. And so part of prescribing, particularly psyche medications is getting buy-in, right? So if mom is completely convinced that brand name X methylphenidate is going to work for Timmy because Timmy's cousin was on brand name X methylphenidate and their insurance will cover brand name X methylphenidate. By all means, I will prescribe you brand name X methylphenidate. So that's the other thing to keep in mind too. Or if they're convinced that like brand name X methylphenidate made my cousin psychotic, we will stay away from that one. I'm not going to argue with you about, we'll take that second sort of stimulant in our toolkit and we'll give them that one instead. Are there other nuances that we have to worry about when we're prescribing medications or other hurdles that we have to consider? What are some of the common hurdles that you often come across? Some of the other things you run into, you know, certainly the appetite suppression is a common side effect. Everyone doesn't get it, but it's common. And so I always have a conversation and I'm sure pediatricians are better at this and psychiatrists as a whole with parents and families about what they're eating for breakfast um, and about the need that they like actually have a real breakfast, you know, toaster strudel, ramen noodles. We're not counting that. Like I need something that's more, you know, robust and has some protein and, you know, all those things. So I proactively talk to them about, you know, their appetite may go down at lunch. I'm less concerned about when they get their calories as long as they get them, right? So having conversations with families about breakfast, having conversations with them about, I know family dinner time is at five, but Lauren may need to eat a little bit later because if her medicine is still suppressing her appetite at five, she's not going to eat. So, you know, let her be special in this way because of the medicine. So I really talk a lot about the, the, the food and then give them a heads up about sleep. Because what we can see with ADHD medication, well, particularly the stimulants, is that the side effects may hang around longer than the effects that we want. So even though they can tell at three o'clock that medicine is not helping with his hyperactivity anymore, at eight o'clock, it still may be impacting his sleep. So making sure that, you know, parents are monitoring that and that you're following up about how their sleep is doing when you have, when you make any changes with, with stimulant medications. So when you're having a sleep issue, would you consider switching to a, a different type of medication, which may be shorter acting in terms of the side effect? Or is that how you would mostly approach something like that other than you know, maybe some other behavioral or changes in terms of their environment? Yeah. So if it's a new sleep issue, because a lot of these kids have sleep issues you know, at the beginning. But if it's a new sleep issue, then definitely think about uh, a shorter acting or sort of a mid-range medication instead and, and, and sort of mitigate that side effect. But if we can't, you know, then by all means, we may think about a shorter acting or we may um, end up going to an alpha-2. Can we get a quick example of an alpha-2? Adamectatine? So adamectatine is a selective norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor. Oh my God. Um, I'm lost. I thought I, I thought I was so, finally getting it. I thought I was getting so, it. So, so guanfacine. I always forget what the what the, the brand generic, generic yeah. is. So, so guanfacine and clonidine are your alpha two agonists. So, so those are your your alpha twos. That makes sense. Now, your short acting alpha twos are off label for ADHD treatment. Your long acting alpha twos are not. That has more to do with the short acting ones being old. So there was no financial incentive for any insurance company to get the FDA approval for them. Whereas the long acting ones are newer and on patent. So there is a financial incentive to do the studies and get the FDA label. So just so you know, you are going off label, but you're still within evidence base if you use a short acting alpha two, which is normally if you have a kid on public insurance, what you end up having to give them. And so adamectatine, is that one that I should leave for the psychiatrist or is that, that's like our fourth line? 
Yeah, yeah. And so it's it ends up category wise being a third line medication because it doesn't work as well and it takes longer to work. This is great. That that one sucks. Right. <laughs> and so it, it ends up being the medicine that you use only if the other two, you know, just don't work because it yeah. literally takes weeks uh, to kick in and then it's not as effective. This is great. One question I have about atomoxetine is I, I use it sometimes in my adults, especially those of history of use disorder. And I was wondering, like, definitely we see this in maybe our adolescent population as well. Is that a similar case scenario in which you might consider that as an earlier line therapy? The effect size is so much better with stimulants. I really see it as doing people a disservice not to give them the best drug for their condition if you can do so safely. So even if I'm concerned about that, that's not going to be my first sort of approach. And there, I know we're trying to, we're staying away from, from brands, but there are medications that are less likely to be abused. So the, met, the amphetamines compared to the methylphenidates are more likely to be abused. Short acting compared to long acting are more likely to be abused. There are medications with formulations that require passage through the GI tract in order for them to be active. So if you're doing things like crushing it up and snorting it or shooting it up, you won't get high from it. So you have things that you can do within stimulants to decrease the chance of of abuse. And what we know is that untreated ADHD is a risk factor for substance use disorders. And so we want to make sure we're adequately treating their ADHD because this is a a risk factor that is within our power to, to address. And so unless they've abused stimulant medications before, I will still try to do that. And it may look like, you know, a family member holds it, right? Because most people, if they have ADHD and they're using a stimulant medication at the dose it's prescribed in the way it's prescribed, right? So if you're crushing it up and snorting it, that's like another ballgame. But if you're taking the prescribed amount, you're not going to get a buzz. It's not going to have enough dopaminergic effect to be positively reinforcing in the way that things need to be in order to be addictive in that way. And so it becomes a problem when they're taking too much or they're taking it in a different way. But if they're taking it the way you prescribe, it's, it's not going to have that same uh, risk. Thank you. Are there other things that we need to monitor a patient for as we continue to treat them? Other than obviously monitoring whether their ADHD symptoms are improving, are there other things that we need to be aware of? So something that's really, really important is following up if there are concerns about learning or if there are concerns about intellectual disability. Because sometimes what can happen is once children aren't behavioral problems anymore, they can fall off the radar. So if they're quietly getting like C's and D's while they have some unaddressed reading disorder, then they can sort of get pushed through the system and not get the supports that they need. So it's really important to follow up on how they're doing academically, on what they're understanding in class, on what they're not understanding in class, and where their special education process is, if that's a relevant issue for that child, and making sure that doesn't fall off the radar just because he's not getting suspended or expelled all the time anymore. It's sort of like a almost a diagnostic anchoring bias, like, oh, yeah, their issue is ADHD, so they keep on having issues. So you either continue to treat that or and not, not pay attention to anything else. Is that what you're basically trying to say? Yeah, and, you know, it's really easy for, oh, their Vanderbilt looks better. They're not getting in trouble anymore. The adults are happy, but 
the kid still isn't reading on grade level and there hasn't been an intervention, right? So really following up with that because I see that and, and that is something I try to really actively work against is that, you know, once it's not inconveniencing the adults anymore, that the kids' other sort of quieter issues that are going to be more impairing long-term quite potentially fly under the radar. Now, as we treat our ADHD and maybe uncover other learning disabilities, do we ever worry about, uh, do you ever see like uncovering of like other mood disorders? Absolutely. And so especially if you have a teenage girl with sudden onset ADHD, you really want to think about depression and anxiety because we know that those can impact concentration. People can fidget as a result of being anxious. You may have agitated depressions. So that's why that psych review of systems is so symptoms is so important. And, and, and there's a way too that being a child with untreated ADHD or even with, or even with treated ADHD, but that is still impairing, makes life more stressful for you. Adults are yelling at you all the time. You're getting into trouble. You're not getting your work done the way your other classmates are. You're interrupting so the other kids don't like you as much. So it's it can be a stressful life to have this disorder. And so we know that stress increases risk for things like anxiety and depression. So there are times where you can see those ADHD symptoms are playing into these other disorders as well. So my, my next question is, often when I'm treating adults with ADHD, I, as you say, there's a lot of comorbid um, depression, anxiety. Is there, I, I've always been taught to, tr- I need to treat the mood disorders or make sure that I'm addressing them at least at the same time as the ADHD. Is this, is this a correct way of doing this? Do I need to make sure their anxiety is better controlled before I start their medicines or is this not like a thing? Well, they might be anxious because they're operating in the world or trying to operate in the world and their brain can't pay attention in a way that allows them to do it well, right? So it may be that once they feel more capable and they are more capable, that the anxiety starts to abate and maybe they don't need fluoxetine on top of their ADHD medication. And so again, it sort of comes back to function. In this visit, in this moment, what is the thing that is more impairing for them? What seems to be the thing that's driving this for them? And it may be that they say, I don't like the idea of being on a stimulant, but I'm really depressed and these things are happening. And so they're much more amenable to bupropion than they would be to an amphetamine or a methylphenidate, right? And so I always start with function, like what's the big driver here? And then look at sort of what they're open to doing and what they see as the biggest issue. Because it may be that, you know, I, as the provider say, you not completing your schoolwork is is the big thing, or you not keeping up at, at your job if you're an adult is the big thing. And they may say, you know, my lack of sex, sex drive is the big thing, right? So you're going to have different approaches depending on what is most pertinent to that patient. And, you know, what I talk to my trainees about all the time is the best treatment plan is the one that is medically indicated, but that the patient is able and willing to follow. And so you always want to get their buy-in and their understanding and and their sense of what the actual problem is, because sometimes it's not the same as ours. Oh, that's a great, great pearl. Yeah, I love that. That, that we can use that as a standalone soundbite. <laughs> I think this is great because I think we're talking about a lot of the challenges in what comes with young adults and adults that have ADHD. And so I'd love to transition to talk a little bit about how the diagnosis and treatment is a little bit different for young adults. And so maybe Angela, can you can you walk us through our next patient? Sure. Yeah. So after that long visit, your next patient is Miles and Miles uses they them. So they have no significant medical issues, but they do say they have trouble concentrating. 
They're trying to go back to school, but they're finding it hard to study for tests. They said, this has really been an issue all their life, but doctors and teachers never really address it with them. So what happens when you do miss his diagnosis in childhood? And then is the treatment that you consider any different because Miles is an adult? Yeah. And so we would still have stimulants as the first line treatment. We would still think about organizational things and measures to help with you know, executive functioning problems. You know, once you get to adulthood, you got to have things like automatic bill pay, right? It's really important for for adults with ADHD. (laughs) And so, you know, the, the functional impairment looks different because adulting looks different than being a kid, right? And so the, the behavioral things to address that functional impairment are going to be developmentally appropriate. And so it is different in that way, but in terms of providing structure, in terms of sort of proactively planning for this difficulty with planning, it's, it's similar in, in those ways. What I see with college students or some of my college students who have been treated for the first time is that they had symptoms, but they may have had parents who did a lot of that planning for them, who may have done some homework for them. And, and so what happens once they are left with trying to come up with structure on their own or what happens when they have too much work now to cram and it not catch up with them, then it becomes a functional problem in a way that it might not have become before. So if you're a bright kid and you can wait until the night before the exam to study every time and it's fine, that may not work once you get to college or med school or grad school or that sort of thing. So you can have people who are diagnosed later because functionally they're okay because they sort of have some some hedge in, in other ways that allow them to get by. And I have a quick question that I bet some of our listeners are having, because I know I am in my head as far as losing things, not able to keep up with stuff, paying attention to the bird in the window rather than class. Do I have ADHD? You know, I think like a lot of, of, of individuals say, I think I must have ADHD because I can't focus on one thing. And so especially in the young adults who are struggling through college or struggling through studying, how can we help kind of tease that out again to see if this is a diagnosis that needs treatment or if this is a struggle of adulthood that I'm still going through? Sure. So, you know, the big thing is functional impairment. So how is this getting in your way? How would your life be different? Does the physics professor say this homework should take two hours and it's taking you six? Or do they say it should take two hours and it takes you two, but it's just a really crappy two hours and you don't like it. So you'd rather, you know, get on Instagram, right? So there are questions around how much is this getting in your way versus maybe this not being a good match. But something you can see with college students is that, you know, they may be in majors that people feel like they're supposed to be in, but there are things that really aren't of interest to them. And it can be really hard to study for long periods of time about things that aren't of interest to you, especially when you don't have the same sort of structure for studying that you had once you were in high school. And so it gets to, does your ADHD only kick in when you're studying organic chemistry Or does it also kick in when you're trying to like do other things too? And so looking for the the common threads and sort of universality of of the ADHD symptoms in other places. So so one thing I've, I've, I've heard, and this is part of my practice, I'm, I'm asking for permission, whether, (laughs) whether this is an an, an appropriate way to go about this is I definitely have some of my young adults and my, my even older adults come to me and say, I think I've always had ADHD and it's affecting my work or my, 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 my grad school or whatnot. I I go through a couple of different steps. I, I, 
I don't have Vanderbilt's, but I, I often use the, the adult ADHD self-report scale sort of to help me as a, as a guide in terms of knowing symptoms. And then I often may ask spouses or I'll even ask them, like, if they're younger, I say, can I talk to your mom on the phone? And just sort of looking at the different environments that they might have symptoms. Is, is this an, uh, an appropriate way to, to looking at these later diagnoses? That's absolutely right. And a lot of times for people with adult ADHD, partners, family members are really important. I mean, with kids, you sort of default to asking their family because their family had to bring them in. But it's it matters for adults, too. And what we find is the studies that look at, you know, does ADHD persist into adulthood? If you just ask the, the patient, the number isn't nearly as high as if you ask the people around the patient that are part of their life. Right. Because they're still noticing things that, you know, the, the patients sort of had this brain their whole life. So they may not even pick up on it. But that is absolutely the right re- approach in looking at the you know adult ADHD rating scales. And there should be if it's truly ADHD, there should be symptoms going back. They may not have been as impairing, but there should be symptoms going back. So you do want to get that retrospective history. The other thing I'll, I'll add is that there are adult ADHD, adult ADHD workbooks that can be really helpful. And part of the work with those workbooks is engaging a spouse or a partner for that accountability and that structure and and helping people with those things. So great job. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad I've been doing it right. (laughs) Angela, you want to follow up on our case? Yeah. So one thing that we should mention about Miles is that they're Black. Usually, so I do want to say we do not use race in a one-liner about a patient. And that's because race is socially and politically defined. So that means that the definitions of race are not consistent and definitely not biological or genetic. Often it's also used as a proxy for something else like skin color, class, toxin exposure, stress from racism. But in this case, it is something relevant that we want to explore further. So there's a lot of inequity when it comes to ADHD treatment and diagnosis in kids of color. So Studies suggest that Chinese kids are less likely to be diagnosed with ADHD, and it's very well studied that black and brown kids are somehow both under and overdiagnosed. So I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah. And so, you know, what we see is that there are ways that medicine and psychiatry have been used to sort of perpetuate extant social hierarchies, right? And the people who make the rules, the people who write the diagnostic criteria, a lot of times the people who are administering the diagnostic criteria are people who are in certain, you know, parts of this social hierarchy. And so, you know, medicine is certainly not colorblind, but we act as if it is and that the patients are the ones who have like the culture and medicine doesn't have a culture, but medicine absolutely has a culture. It is I, the doctor, tell you, the patient and the family, what is wrong with you and what you need to do to get better, right? The culture of medicine doesn't lend itself to our taking a step back and saying, maybe for miles, the teacher is less tolerant of some typical behaviors because they're more likely to pathologize him because we live in a society that primes people to associate Black with bad. And maybe what he needs is more school supports, or maybe we need to think about how else he navigates that class. And maybe what the mom is telling us about her experiences at school are actually valid and not mom being unreasonable about what's, what's occurring there. And so children's mental health symptoms happen in the context of their lives, and their lives happen in the context of their families, and their families are in the context of the larger society. So you're absolutely right. Race is not a biological 
construct and we need to make sure that we're not practicing biological determinism and some of the things that we have done in medicine that have been part of the problem, but we also can't ignore what it means to be a Black boy in America and how that may be playing into what happens. And, and part of what I end up talking to parents about, especially in my public sector clinic, where they're in neighborhoods that are over-policed, where the same behaviors I see in my private practice clinic that none of the kids get arrested for, the kids in my public sector clinic are doing the same thing, but they do. You know, part of my informed consent process is about what I alluded to earlier around the risk of not treating. It is not fair, but the reality is society has less room for error for your boy than it does for other kids. And so we can't afford to have him not graduate high school because if you're a black boy, you don't graduate high school, there's a 60% chance you're going to be arrested and incarcerated. And it's not fair, but we have to be really proactive about doing what we can to protect you and think about sort of what the broader implications are of, of your child going untreated and going through a system that's not serving him well with these symptoms that we actually have some ability to address. And, and it may be that, you know, the reluctance to doing it could be any number of things. So, you know, another thing that I see come up a lot, and you can see this in other communities too, is the fear of becoming dependent on substances. There was, I didn't see substance use disorders actually get treatment until I was a medical student. For the people who don't know or haven't figured out, I'm Black. But growing up, the people who I knew with substance use disorders, like they went to jail. Like it wasn't this medical condition that people got treatment for and got better on the other side of it. Like it was this thing that was sort of a life sentence in its own way, right? And so the fear of addiction, the fear of being on something that is habit forming uh, may look different in, in a different community because of the realities of accessing treatment and structural racism inherent in, in treating substance use disorders and the stigma that goes with that. And so, you know, it's really important not to assume that if the family is resistant, that it's just because, you know, minority people have stigma, but to ask questions about what they're concerned about and then provide psychoeducation around how you can mitigate that risk or why that risk isn't as big of an issue. I really love the way you talk about this. And this is one of the reasons that we were so excited to interview you is you know, it's not a new issue, certainly. And this goes back to your book recommendation, actually. But, you know, anti-racism is like the word of the year, right? And everyone is being anti-racist. And we're all talking about social racism and an unconscious bias and all of this stuff. But I think a lot of it disappears when we are faced with an actual patient and the advice that we thought we would take or the lessons we thought we learned, we don't do them. And so I'm wondering how we as clinicians can really integrate the knowledge about social racism and skills to be anti-racist, knowing it's a lifelong journey, maybe specifically into our practice around ADHD. Sure. So we know that it is really easy to fall back on our biases. So if we are burned out, if we are not in a good place, that's going to rear its head more. So self-care is important when it comes to these, these issues. The, the other thing that I would challenge people to do is to sort of acknowledge what their bias is and look for information that goes against it, right? So if I assume that you just like basketball, maybe I ask you about anime or Fortnite or other things that sort of round out who you are as a person that don't fit you into this, this peg. And, and then on a sort of bigger practice level, you know, I would encourage people to look at what happens in their clinic, 
are more of your Black boys being diagnosed with ODD and more of your white boys being diagnosed with ADHD when you go back and you look at your charts? Are you going back and looking at your charts and seeing if that's happening? Is your clinic or your hospital system that says we're being anti-racist actually looking at you know, things along those numbers. And if they're not, when you're in meetings or you're having discussions about this, that you don't let them off the hook with having their annual diversity day grand rounds, but that you actually challenge them to measure and look at things and then do things to fix them. I think this is amazing. I think it's something we should do, you know, every residency program should be doing this as a QI project who's trying to find ways to, to be more involved in this. Is there evidence to support this? I, I assume that there is, but is there a association between the diagnosis and the socially constructed race of the patient? Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So what we see is that the diagnoses that are more negative, ODD, conduct disorder, are more likely to be attached to, to Black kids, whereas you know mood disorders, maybe even ADHD, are more likely to be attached to non-Black kids or non-Hispanic kids. And so, and it's, and it's part of that same narrative, right? Like, if you're bad, if you're delinquent, if you're these things, then this diagnosis seems to fit better. The other big piece of that is the way that our society understands and thinks about the pain of marginalized groups, right? So it's, it's very easy for me to say, you're talking back to your teacher, check ODD. It's harder for me to think about the fact that maybe your teacher is treating you differently. And how do I examine that? And maybe your school isn't addressing your reading disability and you're frustrated in class and that's why you're acting out. And and sometimes it's harder for this kid to tell you this, right? So if you're supposed to do what adults say, but adults are not helping you, adults aren't there for you, adults aren't advocating for you, they may come into the pediatrician's office or the family medicine doctor's office and not expect you to advocate for them either, not expect you to listen to them either. And so some of the things that have to do with like depression, anxiety, learning issues require a certain level of trust that the child is able to confide and talk to you about these things, whereas some of the other diagnoses don't. And bridging that gap or having that trust may be harder in, in dyads where there's that gap. Do you find ways to ask patients about how their race affects their experience? Yeah. And so, you know, there are ways that it may come up naturally. It's not uncommon that they talk about how the teacher is treating them or with my adult patients, how they're being treated at work. And I'll ask them, do you think this has anything to do with it? Like, what's the makeup of the people around you? What's it like to be the only Black person? Or what's it like to be, right, the only whatever, fill in the blank in the in the boardroom and, and say something and nobody listens to you. And then somebody says the same thing you said, and all of a sudden, everybody's paying attention to that same idea. So it, it definitely is something that we discuss, but it ends up coming up as part of their experience of navigating sort of through life. And I ask them about sort of what they, they think things are connected to. But it can be important and it's okay to ask if they think that that's a factor because especially if you're talking to a person who's not, I don't know if there are studies on this in primary care, but certainly in psychiatry and mental health, there are times where patients may think or assume that a doctor who looks like them understands things about them that they actually don't necessarily understand because their experiences are still quite different. And so they may sort of use a shorthand that results in you not understanding what's going on either. Uh, so it always comes back to, to being curious, asking the patient about what's happening, getting them to explain things and, and seeing sort of why they think things are happening to them. And as a learner, that's like a real, that's a really awesome 
and helpful thing for me to hear because I think you're totally right. We don't want to practice colorblind medicine because society is not. And how do we acknowledge racism in medicine versus attributing something to biological race? So I definitely think I would love to build skills to ask about race in a a trauma-informed way for my patient. And so I really love that. Thanks. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of the colorblind thing, so you know, and I remember when I was in training, I did my general site training at Cambridge Health Alliance. And one of the, the folks there talked about, well, you know, I'm colorblind, so we don't really need to discuss these things. And my response was, when I hear a white person say they're colorblind, what I hear you saying is you assume all people are like white people. Unless you have made it a point to learn about other people's experiences, you don't know what it's like. There's there's a certain way that people of color in this country have to sort of understand white people in order to advance, right? So we have to be bicultural either way because white people run everything. But if you're a white person saying that, like, I don't think you actually know and you're just sort of treating white as the normal, which is a form of sort of supremacy and stratification in and of itself. And you're, you're a forensic psychiatrist, and maybe in like one minute, I would like love to hear about how you see this play out in the justice system in your work with the courts. Absolutely. So that issue of society having less room for error for certain people, when these diagnoses are not treated, and it results in behavior that is differentially criminalized, that can lead to the trajectory of juvenile justice and adult system, adult system problems. The, the other way that it becomes a problem if we just say ADHD, ODD, and don't diagnose the PTSD, anxiety, depression, is in the adult system, that ODD conduct disorder is seen as a precursor for antisocial personality disorder. And nobody's paying attention to the fact that this kid went to six different placements between middle school and high school and that this was a lot of trauma. And so the way that that chart reads, if it's AD, if it's ODD conduct disorder versus PTSD depression to a prosecutor, to a judge, to an evaluator, absolutely has implications for how the court system treats them. So if you are working in communities that are over-policed, that are overrepresented in the criminal justice system, it doesn't ha- just have implications for treatment. It can actually truly have implications for what happens to them if they ever get into trouble with the, the legal system too. I've been loving this conversation. So so one, the one question I usually ask at the end is, what, what is your thoughts on uh, the treatment of ADHD in the future? Are there any drugs or medications or other treatments that you think are promising? What, what is your outlook on ADHD and its management in the future? Hmm. I don't know of anything that is really novel in the pipeline in terms of ADHD treatment. Like it, it's actually a, out of all the psych disorders, like the stuff we have actually works pretty well compared to some of the other stuff and is, and is usually pretty well tolerated. You know, a lot of times when you hear, oh, new ADHD medicine, really they just reformulated something. You know, like now there's a medicine you can take at night and it doesn't kick in until the morning and that's the new the new thing, right? All they did was put a coat around an old medicine <laughs> that takes eight hours to come off. So it doesn't kick in until the morning time. So, you know, don't believe the hype. This is great. We've talked about a lot today. We've, we've talked about diagnosis and treatment in children. We've talked about diagnosis and treatment in adults. We've talked about a lot of the social and other disparities that go along with the diagnosis. For all our learners and listeners, what are some key take-home points that you want to make sure listeners go home with about anything that we talked about today? So the big thing is the the patient is the expert. The parents are the expert. 
Uh, so we have what what knowledge we can offer to them, but but realizing the answer is is always with them, both in terms of diagnosis and and with treatment around the approach that you should take. I'll go back to all that fidgets is not ADHD. So all that Vanderbilt tells you is that they have ADHD symptoms. It doesn't tell you what those ADHD symptoms are attributable to. And so that psych review of system, symptoms is always really, really important, even if it seems like a slam dunk. And the third thing I'll, I'll reemphasize is following up about learning issues, because once they're not a problem for adults anymore, sometimes those things can fly under the radar. And in terms of long-term trajectory, which I know you all are invested in, your patient's best long-term trajectory, addressing those things is going to be really important too. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. Yes. Anything, uh, anything that you'd like to plug, any resources that you'd like to share with our, our audience or anything? Yeah. Anything you'd like to plug? For people who aren't, and, I, and I'm not just plugging them because they had me do a webinar, I used to do this before, but Chad and Attitude, I think are, are good resources for families. I've, I've had magazines in my waiting room and little boys with ADHD will be like, can I have this? Because they like see themselves in it and it's not in a way that's pathologizing them or, or getting them into trouble. So just to give a shout out to advocacy communities, parent support groups, things like that, because they really know the system better than physicians do. So in terms of families navigating school systems, behavioral health systems, referrals, don't underestimate the importance of parent peers, youth peers, organizations like NAMI, CHAD, things like that. And that's where I actually heard Dr. Vincent talk for the first time. So I would definitely recommend Attitude. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been incredible. I learned a lot. I think people are going to love this. I love this. We really appreciate your time and it's been a pleasure. And thank you. Thank you so much for, for joining us and educating us about these topics. Yes. Thank you. Well, thank you for having, and thank you to Angela for being persistent because things have been, <laughs> things have been crazy. And I was like, okay, she's, she's going to keep calling me. So let me call her back. So, so thank you. This has been a pleasure. And we're here. Thank you. What a this great has message. Been I love really that. Great. This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Sure is. Get show notes at thecribsiders.com slash podcast. We can sign up for our mailing list at Knowledge Food Formula Feeds to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. We are committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecribsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our wonderful producer for this episode, Angela Zane. Thanks for joining us. I've been Justin Lee Burke. I'm Angela Zhang. And this has been Chris, the Chew Man Chew. Thank you. Good night. You've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by the VCU Health Continuing Education. VCU Health is jointly accredited by the ACCME, ACPE, and ANCC to provide continuing education for the entire healthcare team. Check us out at ce.bcuhealth.org slash cribsiders for more information and to claim credit after listening to this episode.